You're listening to The Opioid Matrix, A Journey into the Rabbit Hole, a Rigaku podcast. This is a show that will examine how illicit narcotic trafficking is affecting every aspect of our society to include law enforcement, harm reduction programs, and addiction. Let's start to unpack the issues together. All right, so we're back here on The Opioid Matrix. So last episode, Michael and I really got into a discussion about what's happening domestically, you know, have we lost the war on drugs here in the United States? And we really started to bridge into what's happening internationally because these drugs are, they're coming in, you know, from, from other places. And so really, as Michael pointed out, you know, you can't talk about what's happening domestically without talking about what's happening internationally. So I want to get into Michael's experience in the DEA and, you know, the places he's been and the operations he's been involved in, because I want to get into, you know, let's talk about the production of these illicit drugs and how they move and then ultimately how they make it here into the United States and into our communities. So let's let's start with, um, you know, your time with the DEA in South America, South America, especially Mexico. Isn't that the real center of the international war on drugs, Michael? Yeah, I would agree 100%. When we talk about the center of gravity, you know, we're talking about you know, what's at the center of this problem. And when we look at the narcotics distribution um, problem in the United States, you know, in this course, this is separate than the, the psychological and social reasons that people use drugs. We're not, we're not talking about the, the reason why people use drugs. We're talking about the accessibility of drugs. And that goes back to production capabilities in Central and South America in countries that produce narcotics and then ship them to the United States. So as I said in our last episode, I've had the opportunity to work both domestically and internationally, you know, on the, let's just call it the war on drugs, for lack of a better term at this time, a simplicity. So DEA back in the early 1990s realized this concept that there are two wars on drugs. There's a domestic war, which we're winning, DEA in conjunction with its right. law enforcement partners, and there's the international war, which we're losing. So DEA instituted a program called Operation Snowcap and Operation Cadence. Operation Cadence was a DEA direct assistance uh, program in Central and South America, in Central America, Guatemala and Honduras, where DEA agents were assigned to work directly with the host country counterparts, their form of their DEA, to directly go after narco traffickers. And then in South America, Peru, Bolivia, and Colombia was Operation Snowcap, where DEA agents were trained and went and assisted in directly working with the counterparts in those countries. Now, in order to be part of this program, a DEA agent would have to pass a very strict physical fitness test and then get through Ranger School. That's the U.S. Army Rangers down in Fort Benning. We'd have to successfully get through their training Ranger program with the exception of, of of air jumping or parachuting and uh, desert phase. Oh, wow. So as part of that program, I joined that program, went through ranger school, then was assigned to work in, I did uh, a number of tours in Guatemala, Honduras, and uh, Bolivia. Bolivia really was the boots on the ground, real deal war on drugs. And as you can see behind me, I've got some photographs of an AK-47, which was taken off of drug traffic in Bolivia, and there's some photographs of drug seizures and precursor chemicals that were destroyed. But that Operation Snowcap, DE agents would work, in Bolivia we worked with the Bolivian Special Forces Counter-Narcotic Police. We would develop information and develop investigations just like in the United States. But instead of going out and arresting individuals, we would actually go out and find 
drug-producing laboratories. In that time, it was laboratories that were producing cocaine. Go after drug stashes, you know, or, uh, where cocaine was being stored. And go after clandestine airstrips and interdict and disrupt drug traffickers who were using airplanes to actually fly drugs from laboratories to distribution points in Bolivia and then on to other countries. That was the boots on the ground, real deal, war on drugs, right? We went down and we were engaged in combat with drug traffickers. At any given time, we'd have operations in Santa Cruz, Chimaray, Trinidad. Then we had operations in Bolivia. And then, of course, we had operations in Colombia, where we were directly impacting the ability of drug traffickers to produce narcotics. For example, in Bolivia, we worked out of a small town called Trinidad. And we would use Vietnam-era helos, uh, helicopters, to transport our operation teams back and forth. Those uh, helos had a range of approximately maybe 200 miles. So within 200 miles radius of that helo, those helos, we would basically neutralize the capability of all drug traffickers in those areas to produce narcotics, to set up laboratories, to bring in airplanes and transport. So the traffickers would simply move out beyond the range of the helos. So then we would move out, we would move our range out as well and adjust our ability to strike them. And that operation was so successful after a number of years, the Bolivian government then said, well, you can only operate in these areas which we pick. Well, we would say, well, there's no laboratories in those areas. We cleared those areas. We want to go to these areas, these hot areas, right? Yeah. These red zones. Well, no, you can't go to those, those zones, right? So we began to see that the operations were so successful that the traffickers' influence on the government, especially in Bolivia, was such that they started to restrict our ability to successfully operate in that environment. And fast forward to today, there's no DEA operations in Bolivia because the government, I believe it's under Morales, he basically kicked DEA out some years ago and then legalized wow. the production of coca, which increased the production of coca paste. I think Bolivia now is the largest producer of coca paste in South America. Coca paste is then sold to drug traffickers in Colombia who produce it into cocaine and then ship it back to the United States. In Guatemala and Honduras, we worked in air interdiction we worked with the uh, U.S. Army Special Forces 7th Group, and we were actually interdicting air flights coming from Colombia that were carrying cocaine going to Mexico. And one particular episode, uh, inter interdiction operation, I was in Guatemala, and we got, we got an air track out of Southcom working with the U.S. military who was tracking these flights. It was a twin-engine plane coming out of Colombia, and it fit the drug smuggling profile. So I launched in a spotter plane with uh, two DEA pilots, and we actually intercepted that plane. We were flying over it, shadowing its, its movements, radioing its position to our base, who then launched three or four helicopters. And we, we coordinated an interdiction point where we thought that plane was going to drop its, its load of cocaine. So as we're flying yeah. above that plane, it didn't see us. I then observed the, the door of the plane open up and four bales of what were perceived to be cocaine got pushed out. So we're actually, you know, I'm used to doing surveillance in a car in Detroit, driving around, following people doing surveillance, dealing drugs. So now I'm in an airplane, right, following surveillance on a drug airplane, dropping about 400 kilograms of cocaine out of a plane into a river, a small river that uh, was between, I think, the borders of uh, Guatemala and Mexico. So as I'm watching the cocaine hit the water, we see all these people in boats coming out to pick up the cocaine. Well, the pilot at that time, DEA pilot, very aggressive pilot, he says, strap in. We're going to buzz these guys and keep them off of the cocaine until the helos could get here. So the pilot, he comes around, does a dive bomb, and goes right over the top of these traffickers as they're trying to get the cocaine. They get scared. They go back into the bush. 
So we do that several times. Within that time, four helos showed up with uh, Guatemalan special forces and DEA agents and seized roughly 400 kilograms of cocaine, right? So that was a direct interdiction. That was a war on drugs happening real time, real space with real results. And we seized that 400 kilograms of cocaine, which were no doubt destined for cities in America and even possibly Detroit. Right. So we did a number of those operations in Honduras, number of operations in, in Guatemala, in Bolivia, Colombia, uh, which resulted in the seizures of thousands of kilograms of cocaine. And more importantly, the destruction of cocaine production laboratories, making it impossible, making it very difficult for drug traffickers to continue to produce on a mass scale. Yep. And of course, in Colombia, you know, DEA, that program was dissolved uh, around 95 or 96 for a number of reasons. But of course, in Colombia and Peru, you know, the military is still actively involved in fighting drug traffickers. But, but now they've lost the advantage. Drug traffickers have become so emboldened, so strong and so well financed that they're, the Colombian government's basically fighting a narco insurgency, right? They're fighting, you know, we look at the war in Ukraine, right? It's, the Colombian government is look, facing the same kind of resistance that the Ukrainians are facing from the Russians, right, with the exception of aircraft and more advanced weaponry. But it's a war in the jungles of Colombia. It's a war in the jungles of Peru. But unfortunately, we're losing that war, and narco-traffickers are continuing to produce multiple ton quantities of narcotics. And of course, you know, cocaine and heroin are semi-synthetic which means they're partially organic, right? The coca plant and the poppy plant. But then you need precursors to refine those chemicals into their final product. And where are those chemicals coming from? Again, they're coming from China, primarily China, into Colombia, into Peru, into Bolivia for cocaine processing. Now, once we snowcap had ended, we pulled out all of our agents and funding, we saw an increase, a spike in the increase of drug production in those areas that used to be drug-free. So there's definitely a correlation between the U.S. expanding its operational capabilities into Central and South America to directly counter and mitigate the capabilities of drug traffickers to produce narcotics. And then we remove that, we saw the increase in the production of narcotics. And of course, Mexico, prime example of where narco-traffickers are basically, in my opinion, running the state with almost impunity. And of course, the violence in, in, in Mexico, Tijuana, the border, the border states of Mexico is, is greater than we've seen in the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq combined, right? It, it's yeah. just completely out of control at this point in time. So yes, we are losing that international war on drug trafficking, drug trafficking organizations' ability to produce narcotics and to receive these precursor chemicals. But then on the international scale, we're also losing the war on drugs. For example, I worked in Miramar as a country attache for DEA, 2018 to 2019, 2021, in which I worked with the Drug Enforcement Division, which were the, the DEA of Miramar. Now, Miramar is the world's largest producer of methamphetamine, second largest producer of heroin next to Afghanistan. Primarily, the, most of the drugs in, in Myanmar go to Australia, especially the methamphetamine. And of course, they hit, they hit Indonesia, they hit, they hit Thailand, they hit all the countries um, in that oceanic uh, area. Um, so the big problem in Myanmar was the production of methamphetamine. So when I met with the Myanmar police, I said, well, well, why can't you guys do anything? You know where the laboratories are, the drug labs. And I said, well, the laboratories are in areas controlled by ethnic armed groups. And if anyone who 
who's familiar with Myanmar's history, they've been in a state of civil war, even today, uh, for the last 60 years, with 12 or 13 different armed insurgency groups that were using drug trafficking, heroin, back in the 60s and 70s. They were using distribution of heroin to fund their counterinsurgency. But at some point in time, in my opinion, they turned from they turned from uh, insurgency groups into drug trafficking groups who were using insurgency to maintain their drug trafficking capabilities because they were making so much money. Yeah. So kind of the ideology changed from independence to, well, forget independence. Let's just keep making money as drug trafficking organization because now the police can't come in. We work and live in autonomous zones, and the military really doesn't want to come in and fight us all the time. So we can just now import all these chemicals from China because China, where, where's China? It's right next door, Right. There's a border crossing. We can move in hundreds, metric tons of chemicals that no one knows what they are and then send them right to the drug labs. The police said, this is our problem. And I said, well, your problem is not an enforcement problem. Your problem is a scientific problem. You need to be able to interdict, because you control the borders, right? And they said, yes, we control the borders between China and Myanmar through a small city called Musei. And then all along the major highways before they before they break off and divert into the insurgency areas. I said, well, if you control the borders and you control the highways, all you have to do is be able to do is identify the chemicals. And so, well, we don't understand what precursor chemicals are. We don't have the technology to tell us what that is. So I said, well, give me a couple of weeks. Let me look into it. So I did some research and I found a company called Ragaku Analytical Devices. Now, Ragaku, they make a, a wider range of, of scanners and x-ray machines, but they make one specific machine called a a CQL 1064 Raman handheld laser. And what that device does, it's a handheld laser, and it has over, I believe, 13,000 different chemical compounds to include explosives and chemical weapons. And the way it works is that laser beams into the substance, whether it's powder or liquid, identifies the molecule structure, uh, and then tells the, the reader you have a precursor chemical for methamphetamine. You have a precursor chemical for for heroin. Uh, you have a precursor for right. explosives and so on and so forth. And I said, this is what we need. The only problem was the device was almost $50,000, right? So I'm working for DEA. I have a limited budget of $70,000. So I had to make some calls and I got basically, I got approval to buy three Rigaku devices and bring them to Miramar. Uh, Rigaku sent in some of their training team to train the counterparts, I brought in DEA experts to train them on what precursor chemicals were. So now we have three devices that the Miramar police are using in three different locations along the importation routes from China into Miramar. By the time I got the program up and running, I had been reassigned. My two-year tour was up. I was in Washington, D.C. at that time, but the program continued. It was called Operation Viper. Now, my replacement continued that operation, and within, I believe, the first month it went operational, the counterparts' uh, precursor chemical seizures went from maybe a couple of liters of chemicals to maybe seven to eight metric tons of chemicals in one month, right? That device that they utilized was utilized so successfully that the traffickers attacked a police station, killed a police officer, and destroyed one of the Rigaku CQL handheld laser ramens because that device, the ability to identify those chemicals was more damaging to the trafficking organizations than all the multi-seizures of finished methamphetamine that was going across the border into Thailand, right? Because if I'm a drug trafficker, I can produce all the drugs I want as long as I have the chemicals. So the police can make a seizure of two tons, three tons. I'll produce another four or five metric tons. But if 
I lose as a drug trafficker two tons of precursor chemicals. That hurts me because now I can't produce five tons of narcotics. And look at the, the ripple effect. If I'm the, the chemical supplier in China and I haven't received payment or I've received a partial payment, now my chemicals are being seized. Well, that represents a threat to me as a chemical supplier because what if information gets back to the Chinese government and they come knock on my door and say, hey, how come all your, your, your chemicals are being seized in Myanmar? Myanmar police say you're facilitating drug trafficking. And if you know anything about Chinese, uh, the, the laws, Chinese narcotic laws, there's a death penalty in China. That's something you don't want the Chinese oh, government wow. knocking on your door about. So the device, even though the pilot program was an extreme success, I think the Myanmar police have since ordered six more devices. But because they're in a state, they're in a, there's been a coup in Myanmar, and now there are U.S. sanctions on the Myanmar government. So that program has been put on hold, and police can't order any more Ragaku devices or receive direct assistance from DEA, which for the traffickers is a windfall, right? Because what, what have we seen in Southeast right, right. Asia? We've seen a dramatic increase in the production of methamphetamine going primarily to Australia. I think when I left Myanmar, a kilo of methamphetamine was selling for upwards to 150 to $200,000. That had come down from years ago. Prior to that, we were selling for almost 250 to $300,000 a kilo. Now, just in comparison, a kilo of meth from Mexico right now may be 15, 20,000. I mean, I don't have the specifics, don't quote me, but let's say on the high end, 25,000. That same kilo in Australia is selling for 150,000. Methamphetamine is so valuable in Australia that we know, we now know the Sinaloa cartel is producing and sending its methamphetamine from Mexico to Australia to compete with the price difference. So we have a price war between Mexican cartels and the cartels in Myanmar to sell methamphetamine, right? But the key to the methamphetamine problem in Myanmar was simply if they had enough sequel or handheld lasers and people trained to go out and do the interdiction, to create choke points along that critical highway infrastructure and those critical checkpoints, they could significantly degrade the ability of the cartels, I would say, on the high end, maybe 55 to 60 percent, they could degrade that capability. And what's the effect of that? Well, that, the effect of that is the production costs for, for methamphetamine go up dramatically. Because now as a chemical supplier, I now have a risk of my chemicals being seized. So now I'm, instead of charging you, say, $20 a, a liter, I'm going to charge you $400 a liter. So now the traffickers have to pay more money, right, to procure the chemicals. They have to pay the transporters more money because now the transporters are at risk of being arrested. So if I'm going to move your chemicals, I'm going to charge you more money. So then now the price goes up. Where? The price goes up to the customer, just like the, the inflationary prices we're seeing now at the gas pumps. You know, why am I, I paid, I filled up my, my SUV yesterday, it was $120 for premium, right? Whereas a year ago, it cost me 50. You think the oil companies are going to absorb that? The, the oil transporters? No, they're going to push it off onto the consumer. Drug trafficking organizations are the same way. They're going to push off the final cost onto the consumer. That's the guy or girl in Australia who's now paying three or $4,000 an ounce for methamphetamine. But that is the way, in my opinion, that we can disrupt the methamphetamine trafficking groups in Myanmar specifically. And more importantly, I think that's the way we should be looking at going after drug cartels in Central and South America. We need to take the war from the, the physical ground level to a more scientific level and start going after these precursor chemicals more than we're going after them. 
Rigaku Analytical Devices is a U.S.-based manufacturer of advanced analytical equipment for the identification of unknown substances. Utilizing ramen in our devices means we can non-destructively scan through packaging with a result of identification in less than one minute. Rigaku is committed to supporting and partnering with your agency to tackle this problem together. To learn more, visit rigakuanalytical.com. Well, and I and I remember, you know, chatting about the story, you know, in in your work over there and because these chemicals that they're going to use for production are they always illegal? And so, you know, so I'm imagining, you know, these trucks coming through with drums of chemicals that we've talked about either have no label on them or maybe what the con what's inside them are actually fine um, and they're legal, but it's what they're then used for. That's what's illegal about them. So yeah, let's chat a little bit about, about that part of it. Certainly the traffickers are very smart. Um, one of the primary precursors for methamphetamine is P2P, right? It's illegal um, to smuggle into Miramar. So the traffickers went to what we call pre precursors, right? chemicals that can be used for almost anything, dual purpose chemicals. Um, so for example, let's say you have a truck coming across the border with benzene, right? Benzene's mm -hmm. uh, one of the chemicals. There's a number of types of benzenes that can be used to make methamphetamine. Sodium cyanide, theonyl chloride, right? These are all pre-precursors that can be used for various things. These are all in the CQL, right? So let's say a truck comes across the border with, with, with uh, no labels and it's, it's got benzene in it. Well, the police conduct an investigation. Well, you know, our, our instrument says you have, you know, 40 tons of, uh, six tons of benzene. Where's your documentation? Well, I don't have any documentation. Well, where's it going? Well, I'm taking it down the road to this house. Well, let's go down the road and see where it's going. This is an actual case. So the driver takes him down to a location. It turns out to be a warehouse where there's multiple tons of other precursors and drugs that are stored. And the, the police made a huge, one of the biggest seizures in Miramar history. So the CQL represents the first phase of an investigative process, right? It's not the end all, but it's the first phase that says to the officer, hey, this is suspicious. We need to look at this a little bit more. And let's say another truck comes down that crosses the border and they have theonyl chloride. Well, theonyl chloride is one of the essential chemicals to make methamphetamine. And let's say they have documentation. Well, the police then call the owner of that uh, theonyl chloride, who's supposed to be down in Rangoon, which is their Yangoon, which is the capital. Well, they call that number and there's no number. The address is fake. Well, now they know that's probably going to a meth lab. So they have the probable cause to seize it. So the CQL plays a critical, critical instrument in developing probable cause to make the seizure. It's just not, hey, the laser says it's, it's a methamphetamine chemical, you can seize it. No, the police have to justify those seizures. But the laser, the CQL, gives them the, the, evidential, the evidence uh, that they need to uh, or, the, or what I want to say is that gives them the probable cause to make the seizure and follow through with the investigation. Right, right. Because I, I and I remember you when you telling me about this, you know, when you first kind of proposed this, wasn't the first question, you know, it's, it's diff they want to arrest someone, right? At the end of the day, that's, that's how they classify how well they're doing is arrest. But it's just, you know, we can just seize these chemicals and get these chemicals out of their hands. That's going to hurt them more, you know, and hurt, hurt the production more because they will always find another truck driver and they will always find another 100%. chemist to help them to help them produce. Right. But if you can stop the actual chemicals that they're going to then use, you know, that's going to hurt them. Yeah, you know, and this is that's an excellent point you brought up, Jen, because when I was talking to one of the uh, director generals for the uh, Miramar police, I said, "Look, forget about making arrests. 
It's not about arresting people, because who are you arresting? You're arresting poor farmers, poor people who are trying to make a living. For example, there's a insurgency group in Myanmar called the United Wa State Army. It's one of the largest insurgency groups in the world, headed by Westway Khan. Westway Khan was indicted by DEA in the uh, mid-80s for smuggling heroin into the United States. He's like El Chapo on steroids. This guy is one of the hugest, one of the largest drug traffickers uh, in the world. But he is also part of one of the largest drug insurgency groups in the world. And the police can't go after him. He is untouchable. Wow. So the police are never going to get Westway Khan. So, okay, forget about Westway Khan. Let's go after his infrastructure. Let's go after his precursor chemicals, right? Because what, one, you don't want to fill up your jails with a bunch of poor farmers and people trying to get a living because then that turns the public against you. And we saw this in Colombia, and we saw this in South America, where the counterparts were going out and arresting poor farmers who were, who were planting coca, who were planting poppies, and selling opium. Well, people are just trying to make a living, right? So when you go out and you arrest all the poor people trying to make a living, what do you get? You get a counterinsurgency. So now you're fighting what we call the campesinos, the farmers, and you're fighting the drug traffickers. Mm -hmm. So the governments in South America said, look, we don't want to arrest poor people. We don't want to arrest farmers trying to feed their families. Let's just start going after mid-level, high-level individuals. So you go to Miramar, and the prosecutors are like, yeah, that's a great idea because, you know, we don't want to fill up our jails with, with people, you know, on, on these 10, 15-year sentences for driving narcotics, shipment of narcotics or precursor chemicals. Let's, let's work with these individuals, you know, and then just go after mid- to higher-level individuals in the, in the trafficking organizations that are making things happen. And they were kind of set back by that proposal. They were like, okay, well, let's, let's try that. Well, let's use this device. Let's go out there and see what we can do. And the, the, the seizures were so, you know, significant with the uh, CQL that, you know, if we had had the budget, I would have bought 100 CQLs and put together a, a, a road or vehicle interdiction team. And I would have completely checked every truck coming across that border, every truck on the highway before it got to these insurgency areas. And I, I guarantee you the number of seizures would have decreased because the people sending the chemicals and transporting the chemicals would have said, this is too high risk. The police are everywhere with these devices. There's no way we can get into, and no way we can transport the quantities, multiple tons, into these insurgency areas. These are deep in the jungles of, of Eastern Shan State. It's not like you can backpack in 40 tons of uh, precursor chemicals in your back, right? Hundreds of metric tons. Uh, it would have shut down methamphetamine production without ever making a single arrest, right? Think about the money you save in prosecutions, imprisonments, rehabilitation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Hundreds of millions of dollars that would have been saved if we had, if we just shift our resources to more of a scientific approach, spend more time on the analytical process of reviewing big data, looking at the shipping companies in China, who's shipping what, you know, Suddenly, you have a company in China that's selling a certain chemical, a precursor for fentanyl, that's never sold it before. Going to a company in Mexico that doesn't exist. Well, that's, that's suspect, right? So let's figure out that big data flow. Let's figure out how the money's moving. Let's figure out who's transporting these maritime transportation companies. Who's transporting these chemicals, right? Let's go after those, those elements that support those facilitators, right? The facilitators who assist the cartels and moving these chemicals. That money is not easy to hide, talking about hundreds of millions of dollars moving back and forth. Let's go after the money brokers. Right? There's a systematic way, a strategy that could be implemented that could go after and shut down these operational nodes that facilitate the, the procurement and transshipment of these precursor chemicals. 
We're putting millions and millions of dollars, billions of dollars, I think, into the wrong war on drugs when we talk about the international aspect. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's an amazing point and probably, you know, something we can continue to talk about all day long. It really, you know, at the end of the day, what it always boils down to when we chat about this is it's so complex and there's so many layers and there's so many areas and it's not easy, but you know, what we want to do is, is really break down the discussion. And, you know, I think today was, was a perfect example of, you know, you kind of talked about the heartbeat of, you know, where this stuff is coming from and, and a strategy, a successful strategy you had, you know, in, in combating it. So it's, it's so interesting to listen to. So I'm glad you got to get into your South American, Central America, you know, experience over in Asia. It's, it's an awesome story. And I look forward to listening to, to more stories and, and diving deeper into this. Yes, yeah, certainly we can, we can talk more about this because we have to, you know, when I say arrests don't matter, well, certainly domestic war arrests matter, right? Because right. we need yes. to take out the, 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 the gangs and the leaders of these, these groups which are selling drugs. That matters. But when we talk about arresting guys like El Chapo, uh, who was quickly replaced, we need to go after the means of production, the infrastructure that support drug traffickers and give them the ability to mass produce. So two different, you know, domestic war, different strategy. International war, different strategy, different approach. But we have a cultural mentality of, well, we have to arrest people, right? Yeah. When I was a young agent in Detroit, I was graded on how many people I arrested. Makes sense yeah. because we're there to arrest and seize narcotics. But when I'm a country attache, working overseas, sometimes I had managers, my superiors, was like, well, you need to arrest people. Well, I'm in Myanmar. How am I going to go out and get the counterparts to arrest people in insurgency areas? Because they can't do that. You know, it's not one strategy. There's not a one strategy for everything, right? You're right. Each DEA, each country DEA works and should and does in most cases have a different strategy approach, right? How I, how one conducts narcotic investigations in Myanmar or Vietnam or Thailand is going to be different than how we conduct operations in Mexico, in Colombia, in Peru, in Ecuador. Yeah. Right, because we're hosts, we're, we're guests in other countries. Other countries give us certain flexibilities. You know, maybe next time I can talk about my ten years in Pakistan, where I right. worked with the uh, anti-narcotics force, and, and uh, you know, and, and degrading the heroin coming out of Afghanistan. And we can talk about Afghanistan. That's another whole topic: the war on drugs now, because <laughs> the Taliban are running the only narco state in the world. Right. Wow. Yep. We're gonna get into it all. <laughs> all right. Thanks so much, Michael. Excellent, Jen. Look forward to our next discussion. You've been listening to The Opioid Matrix, A Journey into the Rabbit Hole, a Rigaku podcast. Keep connected with us by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you like what you've heard, please rate the show. No matter the controversy around the illegal drug supply chain, our mission is to save lives. Thanks for listening. Until next time.